Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep, there's only one. Visit jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe facial moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist recommended facial moisturizer brand. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome back to the Bike Radar Podcast for part two of our training series with Wahoo Fitness. In this episode, I'm joined once again by Wahoo's principal sports scientist, Mac Cassin. In episode one, we opened the series with a jargon buster, dissecting 10 of the most commonly used training terms. Go and check that out if you haven't already. For episode two, Mac takes us on a deep dive of all things fitness testing. What is a fitness test? How do you perform one? And why there's more to fitness testing than FTP? In this episode, we'll cover everything you need to know to benchmark and measure your fitness. In episode three, we'll move on to training zones, ensuring that you can take your results and use them to your advantage. Now, onto the podcast. Hey, Mac, welcome back for episode two. Great to see you again. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to dig into this one. Good. Well, last time we opened with our jargon buster to the key training terms. We've covered 10 of the most commonly used training terms from energy systems through to FTP. And today we're going to focus a little bit more on fitness testing, which does include FTP in itself, but there's lots more to cover besides. So let's start at the very beginning with this. It might sound obvious, but what exactly is a fitness test when it comes to cycling? Yeah, so this is one of those great um, phrases that's kind of can be difficult to explain without using the two words in it. The easiest answer would be it's a way to test your fitness, but I don't think that really uh, covers the basis. But essentially what a fitness test is for cycling is it's some sort of distance or duration-based maximal effort that is used as either a benchmark for performance or as the starting point, like you said, to set training targets. Um, I know last episode we talked a lot about training zones and the importance of those and really the best way to get those zones is to have a recent completed fitness test. Well, you mentioned training zones there, and that's actually the topic that we're going to cover in our next episode. So do tune in for that one. But as you say, training zones follow from the fitness testing process. And 
I think inevitably we're going to focus a little bit on FTP in this uh, in this session. That's a term that we covered in episode one, and we'll recap on exactly what FTP is. But there is more to a fitness test than just FTP or functional threshold power. So before we get into the specifics, can you run through some of the different types of tests that are available beyond FTP? Yeah, so uh, like you said, there's there's a lot of different tests out there. Um, you've got standard FTP and there's even for just testing FTP, there's you know probably a good dozen different ways, different tests that have been um, created that can you can use to estimate or to measure FTP. There's also um, things like a Wingate test, which is a pretty, um, it's a gold standard anaerobic test. It's about 30 seconds long. It's the longest 30 seconds of your life when you complete it. Um, and then depending on where you're at, I know there are, you know, talent identification protocols where it's really just ride from the bottom to the top of this climb in the fastest time possible. That can be a good benchmark fitness test. Um, even if you think about the hour record on the track, that's somewhat of a one hour long fitness test with a lot of its own nuances there. But but really, a fitness test is a catch-all term that can incorporate any specific duration or event capacity that you want to assess to either see how you've improved or to have a starting point for training. I think that it's great that you mentioned there the fact that a fitness test doesn't necessarily have to mean the use of power. You can go out and, as you say, test on your local climb. You can use heart rate as well, which is a subject that we touched upon in episode one. Very accessible, very affordable. But before we get on to FTP, Matt, let's start by looking at why fitness tests are important and who should do them, who will really benefit from going out there and putting themselves through the ringer, whether it's for 30 seconds in a Wingate test or up to an hour, perhaps for a different type of test. Yeah. So really, if you want to be serious about training, at the end of the day, you need some sort of maximal efforts to determine how your training is, is changing. Um, I know there's a lot of um, basically programs and apps out there that will use algorithms to try to estimate these sort of fitness benchmark values, which is some of those algorithms are quite good, some of them less so. But ultimately, without a true maximal effort, it's impossible for a computer to just tell you this is what your fitness level is. And so in, in that regard, a fitness test is important because it gives the it's the only way to get true insight into what your current capacity is. Um, in terms of who should do them, again, if you're looking to to train and get better, you don't have to do them. You can rely on those programs that sort of estimate those metrics for you. However, if you want to be fully confident that the change, the increase or decrease in whatever metric you're looking at, if you want confidence that that's 100% down to your training, it needs to be a true max effort. Now, there's a lot of different test protocols out there. The one that, that Wahoo uses... Um, that I've it's an hour long, but you do basically five maximal efforts of, of different durations. It's quite um, it's quite taxing. It's quite unpleasant. But at the end of the day, it was the the gold standard for looking at all the different components of fitness that I needed to assess to train to to be where I wanted to be. I didn't like doing it, but I knew I had to do it. And that's sort of where I think the fitness test falls into. No one has to like doing a fitness test, but there are hard workouts out there that you don't like doing. And sometimes you have to do those hard workouts. So I think that's one side where it's important to do it. Um, that being said, no, you don't have to do it. You can still train all right without doing it. 
without doing a fitness test, but to have actual objective proof that what you're doing is or is not working. It's important to do these. So you mentioned there the fact that some um, bike computers and some training software systems can use an algorithm to measure FTP, for example. I think if anyone's used Zwift or used a, a bike computer, I don't know if Wahoo computers do this, I know Garmin's do, you might see an Im- improvement or perhaps a reduction in your FTP after a certain session or a, a certain amount of training. So is it is that a benchmark that you can perhaps base your fitness on? On, but if you if you want to get really specific, and if you actually want to accurately measure your progress, then really you do need to be doing one of these fitness tests to start with. Yeah, so it's 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 funny you bring up the fact that yes, Garmin does do that, and, and Wahoo computers do not do that. Um, that is very much intentional. There's a number of those metrics that we can computate to the accuracy that the, those other groups do, but we don't have enough confidence in them to put that right in front of you and say, this is objectively how your fitness has changed. We're, we're working on stuff like that, that again, can be more accurate and precise, but until those numbers are at a point where we can say they're plus or minus a few percent of someone doing an actual test, we don't have our science and data science team. Like we have no interest in putting just numbers out there for the sake of putting numbers to give people a, I don't want to say false hope, but just, you know, a number for the sake of a number. You can loosely base training zones off of that. And again, we'll get into that in the next episode more, but really to have objective, clear evidence of what is going on in your body, you need, you need a fitness test. Okay. So I think two, two main benefits to summarize in terms of doing a fitness test, one to, to benchmark your current fitness and two, to um, set those training zones, which we'll cover in the next episode. And hopefully when you're doing that training, measure the the progress that we're all wanting to make. Um, let's get into the FTP test because this is historically the basis for many fitness tests, or it's the, the go-to test for many riders. We uh, defined FTP or functional threshold power in episode one, but I think it's worth recapping on what FTP is, and then secondly, what is an FTP test? Right. Yeah. So that that functional threshold power, I believe the definition is roughly the maximum amount of power that can be maintained in a quasi-steady state for between 60 and, or between 40 and 70 minutes. So there's a lot of vague word usage in there to basically say, what's the max effort you can do for an hour if it's paced pretty evenly? I think that's the simplest way to go about it. And I think it's, it, you're absolutely right. It has been the benchmark for training with power. And I think, again, we touched on it last episode, but it's worth, you know, remembering these original, the early people who were using power where a lot of these tests, a lot of the protocols and a lot of the calculations based off those tests were, it was a very select group of riders who had power meters in the 90s, right? It was very elite level riders who'd been doing very traditional high volume, you know, racing was your intensity. So high volume outside of that, it was very much a specific subset of cyclists that a lot of these initial protocols and methodology were based around. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that for that demographic and group. But it is worth considering that nowadays with the access of power through smart trainers or power pedals or, you know, crank arms without that being more accessible, that those protocols aren't as accurate or necessarily useful for the the larger population. 
So I think we we are going to go on to the pros and cons of FTP. But you mentioned earlier the fact that you can get estimates of F- FTP and you can get estimates of your fitness. But let's assume that everyone who's listened to the first 10 minutes of this podcast is invested enough in the idea of a fitness test that they're going to go out and do one of these things. Uh, how do you do an FTP test? So there's uh, a few different methods. The The one that a lot of people have used has been just a straight up 20 minute max effort, do a warm up, do a 20 minute maximal effort, and then take 95% of that 20 minute value. And that's your FTP. Now that's, again, for people who are highly aerobic endurance trained, that's fine. However, a lot of people have a lot more anaerobic ability or anaerob- anaerobic contribution to a 20 minute effort than an elite level pro. And so oftentimes that 95% of the 20 minute value is high. In reality, a lot of people, 90% of their 20 minute power is what they could realistically hold for roughly an hour. Um, there's other tests such as two by eight minute max efforts. And you take the average of the second eight minute effort and you have minimal recovery between. Now that's again, can be okay, but people can kind of cheat that one and not actually do an all-out eight-minute effort, the first one, and then do an all-out eight-minute, the second one, and kind of inflate that that number. A lot of people, and we've already mentioned this, like FTP can be sort of an ego boost. Like everyone wants that number to be higher. Their watts per kilo at FTP to be higher. So people will tend to skew towards the test that gives them the higher number, which you know, for your ego boost, that's that's fine. And if it's the test you always do, that's fine. Um, it still is a valid benchmark. If you always do a 20-minute test, you can still see how your 20-minute power is tracking over time. The, the issue is when you use that as both a benchmark of your performance and for establishing training zones. It's completely fine to have those be two completely separate things, but a lot of people don't want to do multiple fitness tests. They just want to do the one. Um, another big popular one um, for FTP is just doing a ramp test to failure. Um, and then you take your peak one minute power during that and you take 75% of that value. Again, that one's nice because it's easier. If you have a, like erg mode, a smart trainer, you set it up, you just pedal until you can't anymore. You don't need to have any understanding of how you can pace things um, or even know what your current value is to have reasonable um results there. Again, the problem is when you have more people who are more, what I say, call anaerobically inclined, people who can go really hard for three minutes versus an hour long climb, those are the people who will get an overestimated value for FTP. And when that overestimated value for FTP is used to establish training zones, that's when it becomes really problematic. I like this episode a lot because fitness test has basically been the majority of the work I've done with um, originally the Sufferfest and now Wahoo. Um, With our 40P test, again, we look at a larger profile. The big project that I'm probably most proud of is we have a version of a ramp test. Same thing, it's one minute blocks to failure. The, The difference with our test is we then, we, to do it correctly, you need power and heart rate. And then once you do the ramp portion, we can give you your maximal aerobic power, basically your VO2 power at VO2 max. We establish that from the ramp. We then look at your peak heart rate, and then you have a 20-minute, we have a new version that's 12 minutes that'll come out later. Um, But you do a heart rate constrained effort where we look at your heart rate from the ramp. You then do a constrained effort that's more or less akin to tempo. And then we can extrapolate off of that a more accurate FTP value for you. For that test, what we see a lot of times is if you took the 75% of the peak one minute 
the FTP for some people would be overestimated by 10 or 15%. And when you're talking about, when we talked about sweet, sweet spot training, how you're trying to live on that knife's edge of 2 to 3% below FTP, if your FTP value is off by 15%, you have no chance of dancing along that, that knife's edge. So again, there's, there's many different ways to establish FTP, and you just need to be aware of which ones have the limitations. And again, for, for our platform, we have our 40 P test. So four dimensional power, it's two sprints, a maximal five minute effort, and then a short recovery into a 20 minute max effort that kind of takes both the methodologies of this, like the 20 minute test and the two by eight minute tests. You do the five minute test first, you kind of completely drain your anaerobic ability so that by the time you get to the 20 minute test, you are truly limited to riding at your functional threshold power. And one of the funny things that's always happens is when people do that for the first time, if they've been doing the 20 minute test, a lot of times we get messages into customer service people being like, no, this test is wrong. This, this FTP value is lower than what I've always tested at. And it's like, well, yeah, because you were always having an overestimated value. No one ever wants to see a number lower than what they're expecting to see, but clearly it's important to have an accurate number perhaps rather than um, a high number in absolute terms. Yeah. And again, if you can distinguish, if you can delineate, I'm using this test as like for me, if I were to do a 20 minute test, I'd know that I need to take like 91% of that for FTP. So if I have a time trial, that's basically ends up being about 20 minutes long. That's perfect. I now have a rough FTP estimate for me on my time trial bike. That's 91% of that. But that's me having been aware of this, paying attention to this and knowing the attributes that I have and how I need to tweak those values accordingly. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Mm-hmm. I noticed um, setting up a, a Wahoo bike computer a couple of days ago is the Element Bolt that you can, it has uh, an FTP test pre-installed. I think certainly an eight, uh, an eight minute test. I don't know if it has a 20 minute test pre-installed as well as a, as a full workout. Um, also on the likes of Zwift, you have the option to do a 20 minute FTP test or, or a ramp test. Um, just on a ramp test, I know you, you spoke a little bit about that there, but can you explain exactly what happens on a ramp test? Um, and then secondly, if someone was to choose to do an FTP test, would you recommend that they follow a prescribed workout to make sure that they're doing it correctly? Yeah, good question. So a ramp test is basically you have a short warm up, um, like you would do before any hard workout or, or hard effort. And then starting at relative low intensity, you have one minute blocks and you'll increase at the same intensity rate per one minute block. Now, traditionally in academia, and this is all based off the Conconi test, um, we don't need to get into the gray area that is that guy's background, but um, basically it was always established that you do 25 watt incremental jumps. Now, again, these tests, that protocol designed around elite level professionals, if your FTP is 200 watts, then write a 25 watt jump is like a what 12 and a half percent 
increase per step. And you don't have that many steps you can complete if you're starting at 100 watts going up. You know, you only get eight, basically eight steps before you're around your FTP. Um, so it's better, in my opinion, to scale those jumps proportional to your fitness because pretty much all the literature out there shows that the most accurate results from a ramp test are when you hit failure between like nine and 12 minutes. So if you're, if that 25 watt just blank value is too high, is a really high percentage of your capacity, then you're not going to get up to nine minutes. Conversely, if you're really fit, then that 25 watt jump, you're going to go into the 15, 16, 20 minute value. So I think it's, so it's a double-edged sword. You use a ramp test to determine your fitness level, but you kind of need to know your fitness level to get the right jumps for um, the ramp test. So that's always a tricky one. I always say if no one's done a fitness test before to always start with a ramp test, just because again, you don't have to worry about pacing. It's just getting everything out. And you should then at least get a even if you take the 75% of one minute, that's still close enough to then go in and do a actual proper, say, 40p test or a, or a proper, more traditional 20-minute FTP test. Um, we haven't specifically mentioned it here, but there are people who just do a full 60-minute test and just take that value. That is a whole extra level of uh, mental fortitude that you need to... Uh, have to want to, to want to do that or to be willing to do it and and to finish it and go yep i gave everything for a full hour um and that's really that's really difficult to do outside unless you've got access to an hour of uninterrupted road and even if you do a climb that becomes problematic because over an hour of climbing you go up in elevation the air the partial pressure of air changes so you don't have as much oxygen up there as you did at the bottom so that physiologically isn't like the best benchmark so there's a whole bunch of caveats, if, thans, buts, but to get back to your question, yeah, ramp test, one minute jumps, go to failure. It's definitely where I'd recommend starting out. Um, when you do get to a test, it's advised to follow a very structured, at least warm up and then protocol. I mean, you, you described a 60 minute test as mental fortitude. I think I'd go as far as masochism or if, if not further, definitely a select group of people who might um, enjoy that kind of test. Mm -hmm. uh, so ramp tests are a lot more accessible today, perhaps than they were even five years ago or 10 years ago. I think mm -hmm. you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the past you would have had to go somewhere and, and pay to go through the ramp test process where now you can do it on any smart trainer and, and almost any indoor trading app. And by using erg mode on the trainer, it will prescribe each ramp in the test. So if you start at 75 watts, then it will jump to 100 watts and so on after each block of time. And then by failure, you basically mean when you can no longer push the pedals because you're working so bloody hard. Is that That's how it works, right? Yes. And that's why it's important or, or really valuable to have it done in erg mode because people will try to, they might get to a point and think, oh, I can keep going at this power, but I can't go harder. And so they'll, they just rather just keep riding at that same effort, which is its own protocol and, and has been validated for other stuff. But you, you need to follow the protocol. You need those jump ups are there for a reason. You need to go until you can't push the pedals anymore. And, and being in the lab doing like hundreds of VO2 max tests, like 99 times out of 100, someone finishes and the first thing in their mind is, oh, I, I totally could have gone 12 more seconds or 10 more seconds. Like I just, I gave up, I threw in the towel. And 
in all those instances, I'm we're, we've got you hooked up to, we're looking at your gas exchange, we're looking at your heart rate, we're looking at all these different metrics. And I can tell you that no one could have ever actually done more. I've never seen a, a profile where someone says, oh, I could have done more that they actually could. Anyone who could have done more, they never actually say that afterwards. They don't want yep. it because they know they didn't push as hard as they could. So in the back of their mind, they're like, I'm just going to not say anything. The people who like come off and are immediately like beating themselves up, being like, oh, I could have gone harder. I should have done more. Those are the people who actually did give it everything. Yeah, I've done a few ramp tests in, in my time. Um, I think one one or two in a lab and one or two on, on Zwift. And yeah, that is the first for every single time when you when you reach that point of failure. Um, straight away, I could have done more or could I have done more? And we spoke a bit about this in episode one when talking about energy systems, which I'm going to ask you again about in a, in a second. But it, it's also because your your legs are abs and your legs and your lungs are absolutely at exhaustion. But you, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, you recover quickly. So straight away, you think, well, I could have got a little bit more out. But actually, at that point in time, that specific point in time, no way that was it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because and that's and that's part of the nature of the ramp test. Like a good ramp test, it's not that long of a duration. So like peripheral fatigue, like doesn't really start to play a role. So it's really just you're as it's progressing up, you're like really running through the energy systems until again you get to the very end, and you've basically have tapped out the majority of your anaerobic capacity, and you're sort of basically the last. It depends on the person and their physiology, but anywhere between the last 30 seconds and the last four minutes is really just they've hit their aerobic ceiling. They're they're at VO2 max. They're, their body is literally not the, – the mitochondria and their muscles are not able to make any more energy using that oxygen. So all the extra energy, every other additional step, every extra watt they have to produce – has to come from that anaerobic energy system. And some people have a much larger reserve of that anaerobic energy system than others. And there's a a, a term called um, RER or RQ, but it's basically you look at the CO2 expired versus the O2 consumed, and you put those over each other. And basically, that's how you can determine carbohydrate and fat breakdown. Once that value goes above one, you're 100% carbohydrate and every value over one is a representation of basically your your blood has natural um, bicarbonate in it. So you're basically buffering out a lot of the hydrogen ions that you're producing from this increased anaerobic energy production. And so some people, they can get up to 1.05 and then that's when they tap out. Some people can get up to like, I've we've had people who are like above 1.15 for, I know these are numbers mean nothing to most people, but people have been over like 1.15 for several minutes, which is just, that just means that their blood is essentially battery acid and they're just sitting there churning away still because they've maxed out their aerobic ability, but they have that anaerobic capacity to just dig super, super deep. And so that's where, yeah, the, the sensations there are always very, very unpleasant. Um, but it is, yeah, you're, you're going, the point is to put yourself above your aerobic ability, dip into your anaerobic capacity and max that out as well. And that's again, why it's problematic to just blanket say that 75% of the peak one minute power is your functional threshold power, which is very much an aerobic energy system measure. Mm -hmm. So before we move on to some of the other tests that are available, can you briefly summarize the the general or the main pros and cons of FTP or an FTP test, regardless of whether that's a 20-minute test or a ramp test that provides an FTP figure? Yeah, so 
pros for FTP, you know, cycling is very much an aerobic endurance sport and and FTP is really the most fundamental sort of metric for that uh, aerobic capacity. And so having understanding what your FTP is gives you a lot of insight into your ability to perform in, in a lot of different areas of, of cycling. And so it is very, it is highly relevant to, you know, long-term endurance performance. Um, now, some of the, another pro, at least to FTP testing is it's potentially not as unpleasant, at least in the short term, as uh, some of the other uh, test protocols, and it can be fairly fairly straightforward and, and repeatable. Um, the, the cons are really come down to it's one facet of cycling performance. It's one component of human physiology, and there's a lot of different efforts on the bike that you can do that aren't intrinsically linked to FTP. Um, at the same time, you know, having it tested regularly is is good, but it can be very difficult if it's the only metric that you're measuring. It can be difficult to ensure that, you know, the method you've used is actually giving you your true FTP, which is the vital metric used for all the lower intensity training zones. And again, we'll get into training zones later, but basically if that FTP value you're using to set up training zones is off by 5% and you're the type of person who, when you have a zone two workout, an endurance workout, you like to ride right at the top of your zone two. If that FTP value is too high, then you're actually riding a zone above you're in tempo. And that's really not what you want to be doing. That's not the training you're going for, for that specific session. So it can be, FTP is a very powerful tool. It is Again, we at Wahoo, we use what we call 4DP, so four-dimensional power. It is the foundational metric in there. FTP is one of the four values we use. So it's I'm not at all arguing that it's a bad metric. It's just it covers a very specific spectrum of bike riding and, and human physiology. And you just need to be careful if it's the only one that you use, that you're really aware of your unique characteristics as a rider to know that, okay, if you are better at sprinting, better at really short, punchy climbs, or even really good for like a 10 minute effort, you need to be cautious about, you know, using the generic formulas for shorter duration, eight minute, 20 minute FTP tests, or even a ramp test and know that, okay, I might need to realistically bump my training FTP down. You can still absolutely go to brag to your friends about your 20 minute power, not saying you can't do that. Just know that you need to kind of modulate what you're actually using that test information, how you're using that test information. So just before this, this podcast, I was looking back at the, the news story that we ran on bike radar on the 4DP test, because this is a, a useful segue from the pros and cons on FTP and looking at an alternative test in 4DP. And, uh, it says in that news story that it was designed in collaboration with Neil Henderson and Matt Cassin of Apex Coaching, as you were then. Uh, this was in 2017, so we're six years down the line now. Um, has that test evolved since it was first developed? And more broadly speaking, is the idea here that you're, you're able to fully understand what your specific strengths and weaknesses are as a rider, so you can then benchmark those individually and also work on individual areas if you need to? Yeah, Great question. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, when the, the launching of the 40P test to the wider public occurred in, in 2017, when, um, 
Apex Coaching became the coaching partner of the Sufferfest training app. Um, and that test is one that, that Neil Henderson had developed at his time at the Boulder Center for Sports Medicine. It was using some of the, a lot of the foundational work that guys like Kogan and, and Hunter Allen, if anyone's bought the book, racing and training with a power meter right there. It's sort of the godfathers of training with power. And they're that group who, you know, coined the terms FTP, the 20 minute do 95% of that. Like they, they are the predecessor, like they are the original, you know, people behind a lot of these, these ideas. And so full credit to them for that really large foundation that they've laid. Um, since then, like Neil's process was more trying to homogenize or get a few different types of tests into a single a single thing. And so even though that test came out to the public in 2017, the first time I did it was in 2009, about a month after I started working with Neil as my coach as a 17-year-old. So the test itself, because of that, the test itself hasn't changed since, it's changed a bit since 2009, but that was more becoming more highly rigid and structured around the duration between the different test segments but since 2017 that test has not changed and there's no reason at this point to change it that's not to say that that's the only test out there or that we're not potentially working on additional tests that can give some similar insights but as far as i'm concerned it is the gold standard we have enough um results that we can be very confident we um actually last uh summer we had a uh, poster presentation at the american college of sports medicine um in what was it san san francisco um, or san diego i always get those two mixed up um but we looked at we had through all of our um tests we had uh seven a little over seven thousand age gender matched pairs so 3500 men age matched to 3,500 women. And now in the scientific world, women are horrifically underrepresented in case studies or things like that. So having 3,500 women was as part of this study is, is quite insightful. And, and basically that's when we looked into how age and gender impact the change in these different, these four different metrics with age. And again, that's where we confirmed a lot of existing research that shows that women hold on to aerobic ability into older age to a much better extent than men do. But everyone, as they age, gets loses ability over super short duration tests. And again, that's why I think it's important to have a test or at least a number of protocols that you go through that really hit all these different energy systems, because then you can see how you're actually tracking across all of those over time. If you just look at FTP, your, your one minute power, which might be depending on what you're doing, that might be the make or break thing for the group rider want to go beyond and, and ha do well in. It might be your one minute power that actually makes a difference from you getting dropped or not. But if you only are looking at your FTP, you know, you're missing a big part of okay, what should I be focusing on? What am I maybe missing a bit? Mm -hmm. And another way to spin that, if you were, say, um, a racer, an amateur racer, or you wanted to get into racing, and the type of racing in your area was largely defined by breakaways, and you did a 4DP test and you saw that your one-minute power was relatively low to your FTP, you could then use that test to hone in on that one minute power to make the breakaway and then benchmark it against future tests. Is that is that the, the approach that you would recommend? 
Yeah, yeah, and it definitely again it it also comes down to, you know, we we use FTP as that foundational metric for the lower intensity training zones. But for the higher intensity training zones it does need to be specific to you. It's no good to go out and do some 20 second um anaerobic capacity training efforts and just have the efforts be way too low. You can't really have those efforts be too high because they should be maximal, but you can certainly have them be too low and that's not you may be hitting the numbers that your FTP-based anaerobic capacity would say that you are, but you're not actually getting the stimulus that you're intending to. You did mention these earlier, but just to recap now, whilst we're talking about uh, 4DP, what are the, the four tests that are within a 4DP test and how can I go and do them? Um, or be t- How can I be told how to do them? Is there a training app or uh, for, on Wahoo X that will point me in the right direction? Yeah, so we we have the singular the the singular test that that covers all four of them in an hour, and the, and the metrics are neuromuscular power, um, anaerobic capacity, maximal aerobic power, and FTP. And now the idea, like the the individual tests, we're trying to kind of cherry pick and put into this single test is just just peak power. Basically, the start of a wind gate is theoretically a, a peak power test. And so that's sort of where we we cover that component there. The the five minute max test, the max aerobic power, that's pretty analogous to you know your power at VO two max. If that's paced properly, that's basically by the end of that you're really you've depleted your anaerobic ability and you're really relying on your aerobic um, ceiling to kind of drive that power. And then of course FTP test is just a traditional I mean that's really foundational in like a lactate threshold test that's where the FTP test really originates from so that's really the lactate test component that we um are going for here and then the final 1 minute is a tricky one because it is a kind of a combination of it's more like I'd call a repeated wingate test which again is a not very fun um test but it's it's you're certainly not fresh by the time you get to the final 1 minute um, and really what we're looking at there is a combination of sort of trying to see what the size of your anaerobic tank is, how big is that reserve, combined with how quickly can you recover between efforts. And so it's really interesting when we look at um, our user base for that one-minute test, you have people who have a really high recovery rate but kind of a low max reserve. So if they go out and do a fresh one-minute test and then do the uh, 40p test they'll come back and the 40p test will only be maybe like a percent lower like five watts lower than their fresh one we have other people who have just a massive reserve but pretty poor recovery and a fresh one minute might be 25 percent higher than their one minute at the end of um, these efforts and the, the the value in doing that, you might say, well, oh, then it's not really reflective of your one-minute power. And it's it's true. It's not. That's not really what we're going for. What we're going for is what can you repeatedly do at max intensity because that becomes then a valuable training reference point. If it's just – if we give you repeats of your fresh one minute and you do that fresh one minute and you're absolutely in bits afterwards and can't possibly do another one, what value is it to do – for us to tell you to do repeats at that same intensity when you just can't. So that's sort of what like, but so yeah, the, the repeated wind gate and that's a, just a, basically you do a wind gate and then you rest for a bit and then you do another wind gate. And it's a very, <laughs> it's even more unpleasant than the normal one. But again, it's seeing that drop off after repeated efforts. So those are all tests you can do. It's basically wind gate, a ramp, and then 
a lactate one, which, you know, you can just do your standard 20 minute test if you want to, but it's trying to put all of those into one singular test. And it's really, when you put all of them into a singular test and we know your age and um, gender and, and weight and stuff like that, we can better assess where you are relative to, um, I don't want to say normal because most people who ride bikes are a little more normal in our own special way, but basically it's, it's where do you excel and where do you have areas that are potentially holding you back that you can focus on. You mentioned Wingate there. That was a test that we spoke about um, off air before we started recording. And that's, I, I believe it's a test from a very, very quick research that goes back to the 1970s, it's been around for decades. Uh, in isolation, what is a Wingate test? And you wrapped it into a wider test here, but why might someone do it in an isolation? Or why more specifically have people done it in isolation in the past? It's one of the reasons in the past is because it's just really, it's really straightforward in a lab setting. It's very short, so you can run through a lot of subjects. So you can have a subject do a lot of them in a short period of time. Basically, it's they get on a stationary bike and and Again, most universities still have the same setup, the same basically style bike that they had um, from the 70s. And it's a stationary bike where the resistance is actually a weighted basket that sort of acts as a, a brake. When, and so it's, it's a really funny contraption sort of, but basically they'll put essentially a percentage of your body weight. It kind of depends on the protocol, but they'll put a percentage of your body weight into this basket. And then you'll be on this stationary bike, super upright, nice big seat like you'd find on a cruiser so optimal um biomechanically for serious racers um and what you do is you have a few seconds there's no resistance i mean there's the resistance of the you know the flywheel itself but like you're talking a couple watts and what you do is you go up to the highest cadence you possibly can and then they will drop the weight and it essentially acts as a brake to cause resistance it's a very it's the same as pretty much every trainer out there you apply a brake to the flywheel to add resistance and you then just ride as hard as you can for 30 seconds so what you'll look at is you'll look at the peak power from that peak cadence you'll look at the how much of a drop it is you'll look at they'll tend to look at it in terms of joules of energy you expended which is just a fancier way of saying what your average power was for it um and it's really it's used a lot because again it's simple and in the early days like a lot of basically explosive power sports, a lot of team sports, that's a more relevant metric of instantaneous. What can you do? And then how can you hold on to it? So doing like, okay, it's caffeine good or bad for perform. Like it's a very straightforward test that gives you pretty easy results to interpret. Um, so, but so because of that, there's thousands and thousands of papers that use that as a benchmark. So the, the, you know, the evidence around it or like what you can infer from it is it's quite well documented. It sounds straightforward, but absolutely horrendous at the same time. Yes, it is. It is not not a fun time. It's also the kind of test that you can imagine someone like Sir Chris Hoy doing. Um, you know, someone with huge power, won a kilo gold medal, absolute all out, insane effort for thirty seconds or a minute. Yeah, there's some there's some great photo stills from some of his training sessions where they basically put a mat next to the bike so he could do his 30 second efforts and then just collapse over and lay down. That was always good, uh, good inspiration. And again, that's a Wingate test for someone like Chris Hoy, a, a, a BMX rider or a track sprinter or something like that. That becomes a relevant metric, maybe not for setting training zones because that's always when you're doing a sprint, it's just a max effort. You're not trying to 
It's not like, oh, I'm, I'm hitting 1,202 watts. I'm supposed to be hitting 1,194 watts. Like That's not what we're looking at there. But it does become a really good benchmark of, okay, my wind gate, maybe my peak power hasn't gone up from this wind gate test, but my sustained power, I've, I've dropped less. So my average power across it is, is better. So that's a good way to just objectively measure that, yes, the training I'm doing is working. Good. Well, we've spoken a lot over the last uh, 45 minutes or so about power and tests that are based on power and power is more accessible than ever, whether it's more affordable power meters or smart trainers. But I think also definitely keen to talk about tests that you can do outside of power. So let's let's talk a little bit about heart rate tests or tests based on heart rate. Are these worthwhile and accurate? And if so, what kind of tests should you be doing? So for for cycling, heart rate tests are kind of, they're, they're tricky. I'd say they're more applicable if you're doing um, running like a 5k run test. And that's just because, you know, the, the nature of, of um, it's, you sort of have to look at what are you trying to do for that heart rate test. Now, just going out, you can certainly, if you want to establish your heart rate training zones, if that's what you have to go off of, then you can more or less do the standard, like say the standard just warm up 20 minute max effort test on a bike. You can then take basically the, the average heart rate from that more or less and, and establish that as your threshold heart rate. So again, if you just have heart rate, it's, and you want to set up your heart rate training zones, that's absolutely a good way to go about it. The, the caveat to heart rate testing is you should not use it as a benchmark for changes of fitness. If you're doing a max test in theory, your, your heart rate should, at a max effort should pretty much stay the same. It'll go down a bit year over year, but if you're training consistently, you're not super fatigued or you didn't just have a bunch of caffeine or something, you shouldn't see that much variation if you're doing a max heart rate test. Um, and so, so it can be, again, do, just doing a heart rate fitness test is great for setting up training zones, but unlike power, you should not use it as a benchmark for fitness or a benchmark for like how your performance has changed over time. And that leads quite nicely onto my next question, which covers both heart rate and power. But it, it sounds to me like a heart rate test you can do anywhere really because you're not reliant on, well, you're not going to be using a smart trainer, for example. You're not going to be riding indoors. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, when you're doing a fitness test, would you recommend testing indoors or outdoors? And is there any difference depending on the outcome that you want from the test? Yeah. So, so again, if you're looking at setting up training zones, it should be really specific to what you're training for. So um, a few years ago, we worked with Ollie Bridgewood from over at GCN for his hour record attempt. He did his first fitness test just on his road bike, was out of the saddle a lot. Um, and we then had him repeat that on just doing the ramp test, our, um, our ramp test. And he did that fully in the aero bars and all of his metrics dropped a healthy margin because but again, that was the demands. He was going to be riding on the track for an hour in a very aero position. So what we cared about for that session was determining his training zones for that position on that bike. So, and it's the same thing. If you're going to be trying to establish your training zones outside, you do need to, unless you have a really good understanding of yourself and historical data, you do need to do a test outside. Now, the majority of people don't have a good place to do that. I've kind of been spoilt for choice growing up in Colorado on the front range where there's lots of climbs, lots of open roads. So it was never an issue for me to do those outside and inside. Um, I know for myself, 20 minute power always, basically everything was always a bit lower inside than outside. 
the biggest difference was sprint power. Um, but I was fairly consistent. There are some people who are the same. There are some people who we've tested who are better indoors than outdoors. And there's some other variables going on there that are way too complex here. But, but yeah, basically if you're doing a fitness test to establish training zones, you just need to make it specific to what you're training for. Um, if you're going for just absolute, what's the most you can do for X amount of time. If you have a good road to do it on, chances are it's going to be a higher power if you do it outside. Is it also important that you keep in mind the repeatability of the test? So if you're planning to retest down the line that you don't test somewhere where you could only go out and do it once in that location. Yeah. So like if you're on, yeah, if you're on vacation somewhere and you're like, oh, there's this great climb here, I'm going to go do my fitness test here and then come home and I need to compare myself to that, that test and I have no good road to, to do it on. Yeah, that is, that is, um, repeatability is always a good thing for both really for seeing how your performance is tracking, but then also making sure you're establishing the right training zones. And so for some people, unfortunately, that just means they have to test inside and know that maybe, okay, when I ride and do my intervals outside, I bump up the target a bit. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why in our, um, in, in our app and system, you can do the workouts inside in erg mode and they have a very set target, or you can do them outside and we give you a target range because we know you're going to be one, it's really hard to hold a steady power outside. And two, we know that you might be a little, your numbers might be a little higher outside. So we want to give you that little bit of buffer to play with. And would you recommend for someone who perhaps isn't particularly au fait with training and they want the easiest, most streamlined experience and that they effectively want their hand held through the experience that they do use a smart trainer and an indoor training app because it's an extremely prescribed process and it's very difficult to to get it wrong you just have to push the pedals as hard as it tells you to yeah i would say if you if you're comfortable with learning to pace efforts you know definitely a more i mean i'm always going to be biased because i've probably done like 30 of them in my life and i've looked at thousands of them at this point but the 40p test i think is you know a really good gold standard but it can be tricky if you're not used to pacing it so at that point like a good ramp test is probably if you're not comfortable pacing or don't know pacing my next suggestion would be a ramp test over say just a 20 minute generic test because again if pacing is the issue ramp test removes all that and it's repeatable you can get a sense of where your fitness has changed if you make it 30 seconds longer into that last stage or a whole extra stage, whatever. It's a good repeatable test that, and again, it's important to be able to do tests frequently. Like every three months is sort of the generic recommendation. You can do a ramp test more frequently than that. I would not suggest doing a full 40B test more than once every three months. Well, you've partly answered my next question there in terms of the next steps after doing a fitness test, but we can talk a little bit more about this briefly because we're going to cover this in much more detail in the next episode when we talk about training zones. But generally speaking, what are the next steps after doing a fitness test? Where, where should you go once you've got the results? So first thing is you should pat yourself on the back because fitness tests are hard. They can be meant, they're, they're very mentally taxing if you do them well. Um, two, you can either, I would say, you know, dissociate yourself from the results. If you got higher numbers, that's great. You can have a little internal celebration, but just view it objectively. Because at the same time, it's it's the negative spiral you can get into if those numbers are lower. Just don't ruminate on it. The test is there because you want to establish what you're doing going forward. So good and bad, my first advice is always sort of dissociate yourself from the absolute results, except that that's where you are right now. And this is basically just 
the point you're at going forward. So that's the first step. And then the second one would, yeah, be, again, a nice thing about using the training apps these days is you do a test and it'll just automatically calculate your new training zones. So you know what to do going forward. If you um, don't do it in an app and just do an outdoor test or something like that, you'll you'll probably need to do a little bit of math um, to to figure out what the upper and lower boundaries for for your training zones are. But that's and before that, I'd recommend getting some good recovery, either a recovery meal or recovery drink in, and then go about doing your math um, afterwards because you just had a nice hard effort and you should be uh, you should view it at that point as a hard training session and you want to refuel properly after a hard training session. Excellent. Yeah, and the, the idea of doing the maths required to work out my training zones after an all-out maximal test sounds uh, like a, a bridge too far for me to so definitely get that recovery in first. More often than not, the, the day after a fitness test should be an easier day. So you can you have a day buffer before you really need to start um, f- running the getting the calculator going. Well, let's, um, let's wrap up there. Just one more question. If someone was to do their first fitness test what would you recommend what of, of all the tests that we've spoken about from 4dp to wingate to ftp to a ramp test what's the one test that will get someone off on the right track for their very first fitness test i'd say a ramp test for sure it gives you enough insight to know if you have no prior benchmark it gives you a really good idea of of a plus or minus maybe 20 percent, which is a lot better than just going in blind excellent well, that's been fascinating chat we covered a lot of ground there and it's led us very nicely onto our next episode next week which is training zones so how to use the results from your fitness test to set your training zones and ultimately achieve the goals that you do want to achieve on the bike so mac thank you very much for coming on really appreciate your time absolutely pleasure to be here and and looking forward to uh next week's episode and thank you for listening. As I said last time, please do email us at podcast at bike radar with any questions that you want to have answered throughout this series. And we will do our best to answer them whilst we've got max time. And also leave us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. It always helps us to get this podcast out to more people just like you. Thank you for listening and we will speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 